welcome to Candler in Conversation, the platform for engaging in conversations about faith, theology, and public life hosted by the Candler Foundry. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of our guests and not necessarily of Candler School of Theology. On this episode of Candler in Conversation, you'll be hearing the Resiliency of Job lecture recorded on November 8th, 2020. This previously recorded event was hosted in partnership with Candler School of Theology and Peachtree Road United Methodist Church and sponsored by the Manfred Hoffman Endowment Fund and the Nancy Elan Endowment Fund. During this lecture, Drs. Carol Newsom and Karen Scheib engage in a conversation on finding a way through loss and grief. Professor Newsom is the Charles Howard Candler Professor Emerita of Old Testament at Candler. Newsom came to Candler in 1980, only the second woman to hold a tenure track position at the institution. Newsom served as the president of the Society of Biblical Literature and over the past 40 years has been one of the most influential scholars in the field of biblical studies. Professor Scheib taught practical and pastoral theology at Candler from 1998 until her retirement in 2020. She also served as the director of the school's Women, Theology, and Ministry program for many years. Scheib's research interests include faith and health, theological and cultural dimensions of crises and trauma, and narrative theory and therapy. Most often, the book of Job is read as a book of theodicy and attempts to explain why bad things happen to good people, as it is often put. But Professors Newsom and Scheib wants to look at the book from a different perspective, listening to how Job and his friends attempt to grapple with and make sense of the experience of his suffering. In her work on Job, Professor Newsom has often paid attention to the small narratives that structures so much of what Job and his friends say. And Professor Shab has made telling the stories of our lives central to her understanding of pastoral care. So together, they will focus on how these characters use narrative framings to organize and make sense of their experience. It's a real honor for both of us to be here, especially at an event that honors our dear colleagues, Manfred Hoffman and Nancy Eastland. As Luther suggested, we're going to handle this mostly as a conversation between the two of us and then open it up to all of you. But I wanted to begin by just helping us all remember what we know about that traditional story of Job. This, as we remember, is the story about the man of perfect piety who also has a perfectly blessed existence until suddenly he loses everything on account of this peculiar wager that takes place in heaven between God and an accusing angel who says, I'm not so sure that Job is truly pious. Why do you think he is? Because he loves God? or perhaps because you've given him everything. Maybe it's all seen on his part as just a cosmic insurance policy. I will worship you, you do your part of the bargain. 
Well, that's a really interesting and an important religious question. Why are people pious? Why do they love God? Are any of us pure in our motives? Well, how are you going to find out? One way is you could run a little experiment. You could take this perfectly pious person, strip everything away from them, and then listen to hear. Well, how are they going to respond to that? Well, I think we probably consider that a little bit immoral to do in uh, real life. So there's an alternative. You can tell a story about it. You can take a perfectly pious, legendary figure like Job and imagine taking everything away from him. This would be a kind of story as thought experiment, something to help you think through what's going on. So that's what we have in our frame tale. But then sometime in antiquity, a second author says, that's as good as far as it goes, but there's so much more that could be said here. After all, is it as simple as it sounds like in that story? Wouldn't there be a lot of turbulent thoughts and emotions on Job's part? So is there a way we can open up that story to consider some of these topics? Well, this second author knew about another genre that was used a lot in antiquity called a wisdom dialogue. And in this, conventionally, a sufferer and his friend have a conversation about suffering. And the friend is confused and skeptical and angry excuse me, the sufferer is confused and skeptical and angry, and his friend is the one who articulates the more conventional responses of society. So, says the author, maybe I can just snip, 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 snip this traditional story of Job, open up a space, and I'll invite Job's three friends to come into the story to comfort and console him, and then they can begin to talk with one another in the form of a wisdom dialogue. Well, <clears throat> that's what happens in the large middle poetic part of Job, but the limitation of the wisdom dialogue is that it doesn't come to a resolution. And so our author has to write a third bridge piece, and that is one in which Job's final speech is not to his friends, but instead addressed to anyone who will hear, including specifically God. And, as we know in the book, God replies. It's a rather strange reply that we'll have to grapple with, but something seems to shift in Job when he hears God. And so he does seem to be finally ready to leave his ash heap and to resume his life again. He reconciles with his friends. He receives his sisters and brothers. He has a meal with them. He begins to rebuild his flock and his uh, farm, and he and his wife have 10 more children together, and he goes on to live for 140 years. So somehow he is willing to engage life again. So our second author has transformed this story so that it's now more focused on how people respond to suffering and trauma, how they grapple with the dislocations and try to understand what has happened in their lives and find ways to live in the world. Now, I've taught this for 40 years, 
And I know how biblical scholars tend to think about this book, but I've always thought, wouldn't it be much more fun if I could engage someone from pastoral care to think and talk also about this story? And so Karen and I decided to have that long postponed conversation here today with you. Well, thank you, Carol. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, I think that the book of Job probably is not the first one I go to when I think of the Bible and pastoral care, <laughs> often because the way it's misconstrued as, as more a question of theodicy or um, the phrase, the patience of Job is evoked for people undergoing suffering, which mm -hmm. is a bit of a misnomer since Job is not all that patient, <laughs> right? Um, but I do think that bringing the perspectives of contemporary grief theory uh, can be helpful, give us another perspective, mm -hmm. because Job is experiencing something all humans experience, grief and loss and the suffering it produces. And so by taking a different angle of vision and bringing those together, I think we'll illumine some new things and I look forward to the conversation. Okay, well, we're gonna proceed by sort of taking up each successive section of the book and pausing and talking about that a little bit. And so we could begin with those first two chapters where um, we see, we witness all of the disasters that fall upon Job. And then we notice his reactions. And, and one thing I want to say is that the first way that Job reacts really is to enact the physicality of his grief. Mm -hmm. He tears his garments. Mm -hmm. He cuts his hair. He casts himself onto the ground. So we know that he is experiencing the full emotional response. Mm -hmm. But then we listen in and we hear the words that he says. And this is the first time we get a sense of how he may be framing what he's experiencing. This is what he says. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. It is Yahweh who has given, it is Yahweh who has taken back. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And again, he says, shall we receive only what is good from God and not also receive the bad? So these are his first words, and I wonder how you hear them as someone who is responding to his devastation. One way I think to hear them is, is that Job is expressing the faith that has sustained him this far. Um, and he respects God still, sees God is, is giving good and difficulties. But I, I wonder if this wasn't a sort of a go-to religious expression for him. He, he is experiencing the pain of the suffering. But in my pastoral experience, people tend to reach for those religious phrases and expressions that have made sense of their life so far and to hang on to that. Mm -hmm. um, that's what's grounded them. Mm -hmm. It might be something I've heard in uh, pastoral care situations. I don't understand God's plan, but I trust that God has a plan. And so one way to hear that is, is that Job is still trying to pull some of that story that he's known, that's grounded him into the midst of this chaotic situation. And he, he does this by sort of telling the story, but the ground has shifted underneath him. And in the early stages of grief, we're in shock, yeah. right? We both know that it's happening, and part of our mind is saying, this can't be happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the difficulties. We don't really know his psychological state, since that's not the intention of the author. Uh, but, but one way to hear this is, is that this 
the experience of unreality in the midst of a loss, we both see it and we know it's happening, but it doesn't quite yet feel real. And so we go to those explanations that ground us to what we've known. Mm -hmm. You know, my students, when they hear this, on the one hand, they've oftentimes said, well, there are things that I, I find compelling about that statement. He's, he is acknowledging the reality of what has happened. Mm -hmm. And he frames it first in this kind of ex the existential limits of human existence. Mm -hmm. I was naked. I don't possess anything. Mm -hmm. And so I know I am going to have to give it up at some day. And he also says um, he invokes God's name. And so, in a sense, at this point in the book, he does not feel God forsaken. And so, those are very positive things, but my students always say, I don't think it's that easy. Yeah, and, and I think that it's, oftentimes there's this sense of knowing and not knowing, mm -hmm. right? He, 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 he's sort of recognizing our existential situation, and yet, um, the, the first task of grief is to acknowledge the reality of the loss. And that doesn't happen all at, at once, and it's often there's sort of paradoxical mm. experience of it. Yeah. Uh, when my father was dying, we removed him from life support. I was watching him die. I saw the color drain from his face, and my brain is saying, this is not happening. Mm -hmm. So while at the same time we know Job is sort of acknowledging the reality of it, my guess is that there's another piece as, as the story evolves that he's resisting what's happening. Yeah. He doesn't want this to be true yet. But that's a conjecture because the text doesn't tell us that. I think that's a good conjecture, though, because as the story unfolds, this is the point at which the friends arrive and they sit with him for seven days and seven nights in silence. Mm -hmm. That is, um, he would be the one to open the conversation. Mm -hmm. And normally this, this period of time, uh, was it was not necessarily one that was observed in total silence, but something is going on with Job. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that time, we know what the friends are expecting. They are expecting that at the end of this ritual period of mourning, Job is gonna do what culture expects mm -hmm. him to do, which is you get up, you wash, you put on fresh clothes, you have a meal, you receive your friends, and it's not a signal that you no longer are hurting, but it's a signal that you are going to get up and re-engage life. Mm -hmm. And instead, Job breaks these expectations, and we start to hear maybe what's been going on those seven days and seven nights. He says, damn the day I was born. Mm -hmm. And I think it just shocks everyone. Right. And as his words keep tumbling out, um, it, they, they're, they're frightening mm -hmm. because he, the words he says, he curses almost the whole cosmos. Mm -hmm. uh, he picks up God's language from Genesis 1, let there be light, and he turns it around. He says, no, let that day be darkness. Mm -hmm. And he, he longs for death. He says, I wish I had never been born. Mm -hmm. If I had to be born, I wished I had died the day I was born. So he's clearly in, in a lot of uh, emotion at this point. And at the very end of that chapter, he sort of distills what he's feeling. He says, I have no peace, no quiet, no rest. The only thing there is is turmoil. That's his final word, turmoil. And so to me, this sounds like someone whose trust and experience has just vanished 
and who just feels like there's nothing beneath this. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of that? <laughs> um, well, I think, I think his world has been shattered and that that reality is settled in. And death, in a sense, death makes sense to him. He mm -hmm. knows at some point he will die. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. What's happening to him doesn't make sense. Uh, it's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. How could, if he's a righteous man and God is just, how could this possibly be happening? This mm -hmm. is an absurd reality, it seems mm -hmm. to me. And I think he begins to express some sense of anger, which I think mm -hmm. is a common expression of, of grief, although a lot of times we're uncomfortable with that, mm -hmm. either ourselves um, or when we're with someone who's grieving, we're okay with them being sad. It's harder when they're angry or mm -hmm. when they feel so despairing. Um, but I think we see him beginning to express his pain, which is an important part of also the process of grief, to work through it, to, to name it. And his world has been shattered. And one way to think about, I was thinking about this in this, this, the silence, while mm -hmm. it's the observation in some ways of the normal mourning period, mm -hmm. it also symbolically points to the kind of muteness that we feel immediately after a trauma, yeah. when we can't speak. Yeah. And I've had my students ask me questions like, well, what do I say to a parent whose child has died? And first you say nothing. You sit with them in silence, even if it's not in a formal way, because there is, there's a muteness. And there's, um, Dorothy Serla talks about the animal-like wailing. And that's essentially what um, Job says, uh, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Mm -hmm. So we have words describing this because we're mm -hmm. reading the text, mm -hmm. but there's a sense we can imagine in this period, he's, he's, he's wailing, his soul is wailing, mm -hmm. and there are no not yet words. Here he begins to find words, they're angry mm -hmm. words, um, but he begins to find words and begins to kind of try to construct some, some meaning out of this experience of meaninglessness yeah yeah you know I, I think it's interesting as you say at least there are words uh because i remember reading dorothy zola and she did say um that the the greatest danger in these situations is that the overwhelmingness of it will just drive you to silence mm -hmm. and apathy mm -hmm. and so as disorienting as his words are mm -hmm. You're right. It, he is at least beginning to uh, to to articulate mm -hmm. something of the pain, mm -hmm. uh, but it's so formless. That mm -hmm. last word, turmoil, mm -hmm. and you know, I think um, if we move on and take a look at um, the friends, I mean, I've always thought, oh God, well, they don't have an easy situation no. here after that no. outburst, and I think most people jump first to the assumption that the friends do nothing but blame Job from beginning to mm -hmm. end. And I always say, no, 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 they're, yes, eventually they get there, but not at first. At first, they really are trying to be his friends. Mm -hmm. And I think they have heard that he says he's in turmoil. Mm -hmm. And so now consolation in, uh, They've come to comfort him. That means to, to be with him. But in antiquity, consolation was really understood as helping the sufferer think better about the situation. So it was a very rational process. And so their assumptions and our assumptions about consolation may be a bit different. But I think they have heard him say, uh, I'm in turmoil. And so 
the two things that they attempt to do for him is to try to give him some kind of structures and practices mm -hmm. that may help address that sense of turmoil. They suggest to him certain narrative forms mm -hmm. that are traditional in the culture. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing they do is they say, now, now wait, you have been a consoler of others. You know that story of consolation. It's just this time you are the person who's in grief and there are others here to console and strengthen you. Mm -hmm. Or they, they give him repeated stories about survivors. Mm -hmm. uh, they're trying, I think, to say, yes, I know you're, you're in agony now, but this is not the end point of your story. This is a middle point of a story that has yet to unfold. Mm -hmm. um, they also um, suggest to him a practice of prayer. Mm -hmm. Now, they're not saying go pray like they pray in the Psalms. It's not mm -hmm. a lament. Instead, what Zophar and Eliphaz in particular suggest is a form of what we would call centering prayer. Mm -hmm. Zophar in particular in chapter 11, he says, first, you, you settle the mind. Mm -hmm. And that, in a sense, is their attempt to address turmoil. You put your body in a certain posture. You, you raise your arms toward God. Um, you let go of anything unworthy, of anything wrongful, you let go of fear. Mm -hmm. And both of them ask Job in this prayerful stance to focus on an image of God as a God who transforms situations. Uh, Eliphaz is phrased, the God who brings rain to dry land. Mm -hmm. So this is them at their best. Right. <laughs> but... As good as those things are in the abstract, I'm not sure that they are the right words. That's that's the one thing I struggle yeah. with. Um, well, I, I agree with you. I think they mean well. <laughs> and um, anyone who's experienced suffering or loss has probably experienced friends who mean well. Those <laughs> words aren't necessarily the right words or... Or I sometimes use a premature comfort. Yeah. I try to comfort too soon. Mm -hmm. or and, and partly sometimes out of our discomfort with the depth of pain, we want to sort of make it all right and tie it up okay. neatly. Mm -hmm. and, and the stories, they say, I assume are sort of accepted alternative narratives um, to what Joe is experiencing. But in a way, it, I'm, I'm not sure the stories are complex enough to make mm -hmm. sense of his shattered world. Yeah. And so let's take the first point. They encourage him. Remember, you were a comforter, and now you're being comforter. Mm -hmm. So they suggest his role has changed, mm -hmm. but the basic plot of the story is essentially the same. Yeah. He, he's a different person. He's a t taken a different role. But but the, the plot of the story with, that God can be, is sort of trustworthy mm -hmm. and, and that things are as he's known, I think is, it doesn't, he doesn't experience that. The second, that he has something in common with other sufferers, um, there is something to that, but I think when we're suffering, our suffering feels unique uh, yeah. uh, in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if someone says, well, I know what you're experiencing, our immediate re reaction is, no, you don't. Yeah. And maybe it's something similar, but it's particular. Yeah. And so there's something about his experience I think they don't quite fully mm -hmm. grasp. They urge him to pray, as you said, but in accepted ways to make sense of the world as they know it. Uh -huh. And I think part of what's happened is that Job's whole view of the world is fragmented and shattered. And 
their views of the world are these are sort of accepted sta sta standard stories, mm -hmm. and they want him to fit into one of them. And he essentially rejects all of these narratives uh, because they are not adequate to hold his experience, both of uh, his shattered world and some his um, maybe shifting sense of who God is. Um, and so I think they they are uh, he is right in a sense to resist this <laughs> because it's as if it, he would go back into a standard story um, and not really acknowledge the changes that are happening in his life. And so he might be um, go through the motions of living mm -hmm. one of these stories, but that there would be some part of his experience, some part mm -hmm. of who he is that's changed that would not be accounted for in those narratives. That's one way to think about yeah. it. Yeah, I really like the word you used there, shattered, mm -hmm. because that is, that is so characteristic of how Job is speaking in these early um, addresses mm -hmm. back to the friends. He's got a shattered language. Um, he will talk about his pain, but he never will like follow the, I mean, mm -hmm. the Psalms of Lament from the book of Psalms, I mean, they can give a lot of voice to pain, but they also follow a kind of defined structure that's mm -hmm. supposed to bring you back mm -hmm. in. And Job is speaking a shattered language. And in chapters, the next chapter six and seven, no, you can tell he's not accepting what the friends say. Mm -hmm. um, and his anger really comes out. Mm -hmm. He's angry at them. He says, oh, yeah, your friendship, you're about as good as a dried up stream bed to someone's crossing the desert. But his real anger is directed toward God. Mm -hmm. And the image of God that he starts introducing is one of God who is just simply cruel, mm -hmm. loves to poke a stick at the anthill just to see the little mm -hmm. ant squirm. Uh, won't let you get a night's sleep. Won't even let you, as Job says, give me time to swallow my spit. Mm -hmm. So God is feeling not just neglectful, but a really hostile, angry presence. Mm -hmm. So no, um, you're right, Job can't pray. So the old language that culture had given him, that it won't work. And Still, in these chapters, you can still him, see him still going back toward the language of death as appealing. Mm -hmm. It's the one way he could get away from God and he could get some peace. Mm -hmm. It's pretty bleak. Well, I think it's important from a contemporary perspective to remember that where we're talking about grief and loss, we would now call what Job experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. Everything he owns has been destroyed. Yeah. Multiple deaths have occurred. This is not just his 90-year-old grandmother dying. Yeah. Right? This is a traumatic experience. His own body hurts. His own body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And trauma shatters our world, and it shatters our memories, the way we hold it. Mm -hmm. And so I, and I, I've wondered and if how this book reflects the experience of the Israelite community oh, yeah. at some point in their history, that they have been... Mm -hmm through experiences that have shattered them as well. And if there is some communal expression of this kind of trauma that they've been through uh, to this point. Um, the, the timing would fit right, because we do think that the Book of Job, as we have it, was probably put together in the century after the experience of exile. So that would make sense of a shift from sort of why do bad things happen to mm -hmm. how do we experience the suffering that mm -hmm. we've gone through? How do we sort of re-narrate our lives in some way? Um, and one of the things I think that's hard here is um, 
that Job is um, is angry. Yeah. And as I said earlier, sometimes we're okay with um, anger, some general anger or sadness. But um, a lot of people I've dealt with in grief have a hard time being angry at God. Uh -huh. Job at least can be angry with God. Yeah. And I've had the experience of someone like Job's making a religious statement at the very beginning when something happens, you know, that God is, uh -huh. you know, God has a plan. And then a, a month or two later coming to me as a pastor saying, I can't pray. Yeah. Because they too are angry at God. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I think the book gives us is this, picture of this anger at God and mm -hmm. while his friends are uncomfortable with it we don't see God at, at any point and maybe jumping ahead um, rejecting God's uh, Job's anger yeah interpreters have had a lot more trouble with it than the book itself does mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he at least the anger is energy so he's yeah. moving from that mute yeah. phase mm -hmm. to a kind of lament but not in the traditional notion mm -hmm. of a prayer but the lament as a passion expression of grief or sorrow yeah. he's beginning to to work through the pain of the grief, to give expression to his feelings, the reality of the loss has settled in. And anger is energy, it motivates mm -hmm. him. It motivates him to begin to think about this. Even if he thinks about God as an angry God poking a stick, it's, he's, he's trying out different stories mm -hmm. um, that might be adequate to what he's experienced. You can see this in the language of the book. Job's language is, I mean, I like the term you used, energy. That's what you notice about his language. It's vivid, it's visceral. Mm -hmm. The friend's language is much paler by mm -hmm. comparison. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the inner. You know, the, the striking thing here too, uh, I was thinking about, uh, you know, at this point, it's still pretty formless and he can't pray. There's a turning point I notice around uh, chapters 9 and 10. Mm -hmm. And this is where, again, he starts off with sarcasm because he lights on this idea about, yeah, I can't pray. Uh, what if I can have a trial with God? And that's sort of, ha, no, God's got all the money. God's got the best lawyers. Who could win a trial with God? Mm -hmm. And so he's making fun of this idea as part of his expression of anger at God. Mm -hmm. You'd make me testify against myself. Um, but once he's introduced this idea, it won't let him go. Mm -hmm. And he keeps coming back to it, keeps coming back to it. It's possible. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is, since he can't pray, this is a way of possibly imagining communicating with God. Right, to engage God. Mm -hmm. And and I think you're right. He's he's sort of trying on different narratives. He's in one story he's simply the victim of a vicious attack, and another he's taking his case to God. And mm -hmm. to begin to imagine something mm -hmm. different requires creativity mm -hmm. um, and sort of shows him moving forward, even though, and the process of narrative reconstruction when we go through something that shatters our world isn't like, oh, here's an old story, and here's uh, a new uh, one. We have to try on different things. You know, he gets almost stuck in one story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, um, but he keeps, there's something that keeps pulling him forward. Mm -hmm. And well, let me, what if I think of it this way? Maybe this story would make sense out of it. If if, if God is a vindictive judge, then at least it makes sense in my experience. Yeah. So it's an attempt to construct another narrative, it seems mm -hmm. to me. And he now has, he has the energy of anger. He's mm -hmm. not, he's not um, 
caught entirely in this desire for, for death. He, he wants to stay in court, so he's got to at least live long enough for that, right? Oh, and you know, you're absolutely right. In chapter 10, when he mentions death there, it's not as something desirable anymore. It's as something negative that he wants to avoid precisely because it would interfere with his being able to resolve his case. So that seems to me a shift out of the agony yeah. in terms uh -huh. of, you know, well, darn it, I'm going to wrest something out of this. Yeah. I'm going to get something here that makes sense. I'm going to find some way uh, to have my day in court, to have my say. Um, so I think that, um, and he's, it's a, in some ways, there's still a little piece of his previous narrative because mm -hmm. it's still in terms of justice and injustice a yeah. little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but it begins to turn, um, and we see him, one way to think about making meaning making and loss is to expand or thicken the plot. He's kind of doing that. Oh yeah. He sort of shifted the plot from one of, you know, the the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, who suffers or who doesn't, to um, this courtroom drama. And it's 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 um, God becomes a different kind of character. Mm -hmm. And it's um, and Job himself is becoming a different kind of character. Right. And yeah. so he's. He's, he's beginning to let go. He's rejected the friend's mm -hmm. traditional narratives. He's, he's let go of his, and he's trying out something yeah. else. Um, he's maybe not quite there yet, yeah. but it's at least there's movement towards some new possibility and some way of understanding. So he tries it out. Yeah. I, you mentioned creativity, and um, this literally is the first time in all of ancient Israelite literature that anyone has developed the notion of taking God to trial. Mm. Now, you did have the notion of, of, you know, God might bring Israel to trial uh, for mm. a breach of covenant, but nobody had used this model. Mm -hmm. And since that time, it has the trial with God has become a kind of staple of Jewish thought. Um, but we actually see an idea coming to birth mm -hmm. in what Job says. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is, uh, it, there's a lot of risk taking in doing that. Uh, but I'm, you know, it, it, you also said he, he holds on to it, but he, but he doesn't. And you can see this in the, the latter chapters of the dialogue. Um, I think it's almost as though the author is trying to depict cognitive dissonance or mm -hmm. something. Job's got these two views of God. Mm -hmm. One of them is God the monster mm -hmm. who's out to get you, obsessed with you. And the other one is, no, God who, as tradition says, is fair, just, mm -hmm. and honorable, and hears those who bring complaints. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very unclear um, which of these narratives is going to win. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm aware of the time, and I want to be sure we have plenty of time to mm -hmm. talk about the end of the book. So I think we've hit the main points there. His last speech, he does seem to resolve enough, and this is in chapters 29 to 31, mm -hmm. he's resolved enough that he's made his bet that he's going to uh, assume that God will hear him in a mm -hmm. trial. Mm -hmm. So in those chapters, he no longer sounds like a man in turmoil. Mm -hmm. He, in those chapters, he presents himself. He's not talking to the friends anymore. He's talking to whoever will hear, particularly God. Mm -hmm. And um, he defends his life. 
He does see his suffering as kind of an indication of punishment, which he says is absolutely undeserved. And so he utters this speech of clearance. And you can see there's one little part in there that indicates why he thinks God will listen to him. And that is he draws on his own experience and he says, you know, um, I ran a big household and when my servants thought I was treating them unjustly, they came to me and they complained. And I listened to them fairly, not defensively, and adjudicated fairly. I think that I am made in the image of God, basically, and therefore God will do that too. Um, it's a really compelling point. Yeah, I think there is an expectation that if he, as a human, can be fair, then God certainly should be fair, even though he's, his anger earlier has led him to see sort of God as a monster. Mm -hmm. But I think there is this sort of expectation that God will be fair like he is. But I'm not sure that narrative goes far enough, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, Where do you see it lacking? Well, for one thing, um, well, it begins when God responds, right? I don't know if you're ready to jump ahead to that, but um, he he's still sort of operating out of categories that he knows from the human perspective. Okay, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got me. His his framing is very clear, and we know exactly what he expects. He expects God to show up and uh -huh. say, "Hmm, now that you put it that way, uh -huh. I see what you're talking about. I was wrong. You were right." Here, I'll, I'll try to make it better. Yeah, it's a different story <laughs> that he started with, but it's still in sort of categories that where the world makes sense, and yeah. there's a certain rationality, and, and things are not all chaotic, And um, but I, I'm not sure he goes far enough, mm -hmm. and you know, when God begins to respond, it's mm -hmm. like, you don't get it, Job. <laughs> you still don't quite get it. Yeah. You know, there's a larger story here. Um, um, yeah, God, God, bigger. yeah, God definitely... Uh, you know, if you think about poor, um, just as the friends were faced a challenge trying to figure out how to respond to Job, you can just imagine God thinking, hmm, there's just no way I can respond on those terms because they wouldn't be adequate. Right. And so God's response seems to come out of left field mm -hmm. from Job's point of mm -hmm. view and that God starts addressing his attention and directing Job's attention to the structures of the cosmos. Yes. The pillars of the earth the chaotic sea, the seashore that keeps the sea in bounds, mm -hmm. the gates of death. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there is death, but it's a gated community, if you will, to keep, so that it can't just run over everything. Mm -hmm. um, the animals, God tends to the needs of the mountain goats, but also the lions that mm -hmm. hunt them as prey. Mm -hmm. um, the wild ox who doesn't care about being domesticated. And finally, those two strange creatures, Leviathan. This is the monster out of their dreams. Right, right. King over all proud beasts. Mm -hmm. And Behemoth, God says, whom I made as I made you. Mm -hmm. It's a very peculiar response. It is a peculiar <laughs> response. And I, I think it, it points us to some interesting directions because it I think it's saying Job you you need a different story but this this one of a court trial even if even if Job, God would say to Job you're right you're unjustly um, punished 
it doesn't fully account for his suffering. I mean, he still suffers from that, and that's not going to go away. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's as if God is saying that. Think he's God is saying think in terms of creation. You're thinking in terms of human courtrooms. Creation is a much bigger drama. Mm -hmm. Let's think of a larger drama. Yeah. And in a sense, it, the the larger the smaller story doesn't account for the tragedy that um, that mm -hmm. that he's that Job has experienced or what we might call the tragic character of the world. And God re relates the, to this in terms of that. Um, the goat, the goat yeah. is out wandering around, but for the lion to thrive, yeah. it eats the goat. So there's mm -hmm. this, there's this conditions of that. What what allows the well-being of one requires the suffering of another. Mm -hmm. So there's this conflict, and that's a, a tr kind of tragic view of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not the lion's not evil, no. But there's this tragic conflict between what one requires um, to survive or thrive that might impinge on the other and cause suffering. And that seems to be part of what God is saying, but that God is, that tragedy isn't running amok. As you said, mm -hmm. there's, there are um, constraints to chaos. So mm -hmm. the relationship to chaos and creation seems different to me than the way that Job imagines it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I, 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 the category of tragedy is one that I found really helpful, mm -hmm. too, um, because in um, Job wants a non-tragic world. Yes. He wants one that you can reduce everything to right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we know that certainly the suffering of many of us, even, even where wrongful actions are involved, it's not the full understanding of what it's like to live in this in a world. Mm -hmm. And so the category of the trial of just right and wrong um, doesn't cover enough. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, uh, we were talking about energy earlier. Mm -hmm. There is so much energy and beauty and vitality in the divine speeches too. Mm -hmm. um, Initially, when I started teaching on this book, mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do with the divine speeches. And uh, I, I kept trying to make an argument out of them in just purely rational terms. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the very first time I taught this book, there was a middle-aged woman in my class um, whose son, teenage son, um, was killed in a car accident mm -hmm. during the class. And... Uh, when she came back after a week away, um, she took me aside and she said, on the day of his funeral, I read Job 38. And I was a little surprised and I said, why did you choose that, that text to read before the funeral? And she said, I needed to know that my pain was not all there was in the world. Mm -hmm. And I, that has always stuck with me, mm -hmm. that in addition to what the divine speeches are saying in terms of how we understand, they also seem to point to um, a different way of placing Job in, and his suffering in relationship to the whole of creation. Yeah, I think that's what it does by mm -hmm. sort of God shifting the frame. So mm -hmm. it's not just about you, Job, I recognize your suffering, but this mm -hmm. is part of a larger mm -hmm. 
um, to the groaning of creation in a sense, mm -hmm. the way that chaos and creation are interwoven, the way that um, I, I think about cases where there's maybe a tragic accident and someone is killed. Yeah. Um, and the parents maybe want to go to court and sue the, let, let's say a crane falls on someone yeah. and kills them, sue the crane maker. But that doesn't generally resolve the pain. Yeah. It, but it's an attempt to put it into someone's at fault. Yes. You know, there's the just and the unjust. Mm -hmm. And so even though Job has sort of tried to put it in this courtroom drama, I think God is saying that's not a big enough frame. Uh -huh. And But the other thing that happens is that God encounters Job, right? Yes. God yes. doesn't throw the course out of uh, the case out of court oh he's well he sort of leaves the courtroom it's a larger field <laughs> but doesn't remain silent doesn't remain silent yeah. encounters god mm -hmm. and i think that there's a something in that encounter mm -hmm. um, which begins to shift something in job mm -hmm. um and maybe he begins to see something larger he mm -hmm. sees himself in yeah. as a part of creation um and you know, with the examples of the, the goat and the lion, it's that, well, I'm not the only one who suffers. There's suffering, there's larger suffering, even mm -hmm. in creation. So maybe there begins to be some um, some little shift in how Job is beginning to be able to hear something, see yeah. another frame yeah. that, that, that God is saying, well, this was a good story you came up with, and I'll play along a little bit, but not really. Let's go to a different story. Yeah. Let's go to a different, different yeah. At the same time, God never says, uh, no, justice just isn't part of the scheme of things. No. And so it's just that you can't absolutize that right. and make right. it the key that unlocks everything. everything. It has its place, mm -hmm. but then there are also those things which for which it's not adequate, mm -hmm. as you say. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, Robert Alter, I know, said, he said, you know, people get focused on the fact that God doesn't exactly answer Job as what Job had said in chapters 29 to 31. Robert Alter said, I think he's answering Job, Job 3, yeah. where Job felt like uh, he was he was just going to have creation implode into death and the abyss. Mm -hmm. And instead, in a sense, God directs Job to God's continuing presence in a tragically shaped yes. creation. Yes. And it's that tragic shaping that I think mm -hmm. uh, we, we sometimes find resistance in ourselves to, mm -hmm. but it's the only place there is to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's that, um, but what God doesn't abandon Mm -hmm. Job in that tragic reality exactly meets yeah. meets him in the midst of that is present with him in the midst of that yeah and again my my pastoral experience um, sometimes even as people try to work through these different narratives and ask the why question mm -hmm. ultimately that can't be answered yeah. but when they experience some sense of presence in yes. the midst of that mm -hmm. that that they can live with that sort of mm -hmm. mystery of tragedy mm -hmm. um, and and be more a little more accepting of it, or at least not fight against it, or not try to impose a different kind of well. It's got to be just or unjust. Now, you know, one of the most interesting things is not what God says to Job, but what Job then says in response. He's, he's mm -hmm. just got a few little lines, mm -hmm. and he does seem to say, "Ha, 
I recognized something I hadn't understood before. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ears. Mm -hmm. Now my eye sees you. And therefore, and of course, we're all leaning in to say, please, Joe, help us understand <laughs> what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the Hebrew is strategically ambiguous. Yeah. It could mean about six different things. Mm -hmm. The traditional rendering in, certainly in most Christian Bibles, um, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, is certainly wrong. Mm -hmm. Whatever Job says, it's not okay. that. Okay. There's two possibilities that I think are more likely. One of them is um, I reject uh, my previous understanding or my mm -hmm. words, and I am comforted or consoled. That's the same word we had way back mm -hmm. in the beginning of the book. I am consoled concerning dust and ashes. Now, the dust and ashes could mean I'm consoled concerning the state of mourning. That is, I'm ready mm -hmm. now to, to proceed to engage life again. But dust and ashes, if you remember, Abraham uses the phrase dust and ashes to refer to humans as mortal mm -hmm. beings. And so Joe could even be saying, my previous understanding wasn't adequate, mm -hmm. and now I do find some consolation in embracing what it means to be a mortal human being in this world. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think if Job is opened up to considering sort of the possibility of a tragic view of the, the world, that we part of that is that we're mortal and human and fragile, and mm -hmm. things can happen to us yeah. um, that aren't explainable, that aren't just, um, and that he seems to at least be, some, there's some narrative shift in him. Mm -hmm. God has sort of presented an alternative narrative to his of the, of the court. And there seems to be like, huh, I hadn't thought of that before. Mm -hmm. There seems to be some yeah. openness to this. And, and it makes sense to me that if he's sort of accepting, or at least considering accepting his mortality, mm -hmm. um, then he, he begins to see himself differently. He begins to see God differently. Mm -hmm. He maybe lets go of some images he's had of God. And I've been thinking about this concept in grief theory that's a new newer concept about when we lose someone that we need to reconfigure our bond with the, with the deceased. The old oh. theory used to be that when someone dies, you you take the psychic energy that was invested in that person and you remove it and you put it somewhere else. But the reality is, is that, you know, I mean, I still hear the voices of my parents in my head. They've both oh, yeah. been gone some time. Uh -huh. They're part of our psychic world. Yeah. And that we have to sort of reimagine what, who this person is, who they've been to us. If we don't, what happens is, if you think about parents who keep the room of their 10-year-old mm -hmm. child who's died as it is, they try to keep that same story and try to live that out, which means they'll get stuck in their grief, and that generally leads to psychological and often physical ailments. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some openness in Job, um, but we don't know the end of the story. And you isn't know. that sort of intentional? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think having his last words be a little something we have, we can't quite tell what he said, mm -hmm. but yeah, then the actions at the end, that's the last we hear from him. We know what he does. First of all, God does not rebuke Job. God rebukes the friends mm -hmm. and tells Job uh, that they have not spoken, uh, you have not spoken to me rightly as my servant Job has. Mm -hmm. But God asks Job to sacrifice for, in a, an act of reconciliation for the friends. Um, Job receives his family. Uh, he accepts 
a small gifts from them that he uses to help rebuild his life. He, um, he and his wife um, have 10 more children together. This is what's striking to me. He knows how things can happen, how, how life can unravel. Mm -hmm. He's still willing to bring 10 more children mm -hmm. into the world. And he lives 140 more years. But we don't know what's inside of him. Yeah, and I, I think that, that it could suggest a different, I mean, he's presented in the beginning as someone who trusts and loves God. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I think the question is, is he trusting God in a different kind of way mm -hmm. with a willingness to accept the contingency of life mm -hmm. and still see what's beautiful in that? There's, there's also a concept called post-traumatic growth, mm -hmm. um, which looks at the way it's not just that people are resilient through trauma, that they sort of come back to the previous state, but that mm -hmm. they, actually, mm -hmm. they actually have some kind of psychological and often spiritual growth, that they come to see that even though they've experienced this tragedy, there's a deeper appreciation for the beauty of life mm -hmm. in the midst of what's tragic. And we don't know if Job's experiencing that, but there's oh. a suggestion that maybe there's an openness. I think, yeah, we, we do have one detail. Uh, uh, <clears throat> maybe this is just the feminist in us, mm -hmm. but uh, with, with oh. Job's seven uh, sons mm -hmm. and three daughters, and he gives his daughters an inheritance along with his sons. This is not typically done mm -hmm. in ancient culture. And the only thing we know about his words is we know the names of his three daughters. Mm -hmm. And he names one of them Dove, and he names the next one Cinnamon, and he names the third one Box of Eyeshadow. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that, but there's these are names of beauty. Right. He is not a man who can no longer enjoy. He's not someone from whom a confrontation with the tragic took away the possibility for love mm -hmm. and for an appreciation of beauty. We do know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wonder if the openness of the story is to invite the reader in, mm -hmm. the reader who has also suffered, yeah. to be able to create his or her or their own story mm -hmm. of what that kind of growth looks like. If that was all spelled out exactly how mm -hmm. God, how Job became a better person, yeah. we would lose something. It'd be like the friends right. trying to tell yeah. you, this is the narrative you're so supposed to have. So to have just the possibility, the suggestion mm -hmm. that even, and it's not as if his suffering is erased, no. but even so, there's some different way of understanding the complexity of creation and the beauty. Thanks for listening to this episode of Candler and Conversation. Be sure to like and subscribe to be updated when we release new episodes. You can also visit candlerfoundry.emory.edu to learn more about our courses, speaker series, resources, and other offerings developed with you and your community in mind.